Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. There are two kinds of beings, God and everything that is not God. You and I distinguish between other sorts of beings, plant and animal, liquid and solid, star and planet. These are different. But no two beings are more different than God, the creator, and everything else that exists. Everything on the one hand that we perceive with the eye that we can put under the microscope and study falls under the title of not God, including you. And set over against this whole collection of things and beings is one being different from all of this. God, the creator of heaven and earth, the infinite, the alpha, the omega, the eternal God. To whom, asks Isaiah the prophet, will you liken God or what likeness compares with him? You and I can be compared to many things. I have two eyes like a dog. I need sunlight like a flower. But to what will you compare God? Nothing. God says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? And David echoes that idea. Therefore you are great, he says, O Lord God, for there is none like you. Now, we might think, well, there's someone like God because we're made in His image. So, we are like God. Okay, in some ways, sure. But in the most essential way, no. In the most essential way, you and I are much more like a grain of dirt than like God. And this is the most essential way. This is the core difference between God and all else. God is the only independent being in our universe. And everything and everyone else is dependent upon that one independent being. God doesn't need you. You need God. That is the essential difference between the two sorts of being that comprise our universe or that are in our universe as some translations of Psalm 100 verse 3 read, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. This is why we call him the Alpha. He predates, precedes all creation. And there was a time when only he existed. And there was never a time that he did not exist. He is an independent being. These words might seem to you like highfalutin philosophy. Fit for academics with their chalk on squeaky chalkboards? You're wrong. <laughs> this concept, God and not God, independent and dependent, is in some ways the most important concept for you, for you to grasp, not for philosophers and academics, but for you, a human living on this earth. 
Your eternal destiny depends upon you acknowledging that you are not God. That you are a dependent and not an independent being. Whether you will spend future eternity in complete bliss forever or in conscious torment under the judgment of this God depends upon whether you come in this life to acknowledge that you are a dependent and not an independent being. That is the most essential thing in this life. It's this, that you acknowledge that distinction and that you place yourself in this category and God in this. Some of you right now are depending more upon yourself as a creature for your own righteousness and salvation, for your own meaning and purpose than you are upon God your creator. And that is a flimsy board beneath your feet that will snap in the face of eternity. Others here are trusting more in someone else. God forbid even myself or another teacher or a church for righteousness before God, for a justification of being. That as well is the broken reed of Egypt. You lean upon it and it pierces the hand. Cursed is the man whose trust is in flesh and has forsaken the Lord. Your whole life, your well-being for now and forever depends upon acknowledging the distinction between all that is dependent and the one being who is not. You are a derived dependent creature. Do you know that? God is the only self-existing, self-sufficient, independent being in the universe and outside the universe. Do you know that? Do you believe that to be true? Everything hinges on that. Last week we had overviewed the book of Jonah and we were introduced to the two main characters, God and Jonah, who will in many ways be a stand-in for us, humanity. And now as we move through the first three verses, we find the very first actions of the story. What are God and Jonah doing in the story? And as we observe those two things, we find Scripture pleading with you, taking you by the collar, getting into your face and pleading with you. Not to depend on yourself or any man, but to depend on the one independent being, on God himself. And the way that this passage will do this, you will find, is by presenting before you, through the very first action of the text, a God who is good and worth depending upon. And then giving you an example of what happens when you don't in Jonah. So let's look here at Jonah chapter 1, the first three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away 
from the presence of the Lord. In this small passage, that is the most important phrase. And it's repeated twice so that you get it. Jonah flees away from the presence of God, the Creator. Here's a creature, a small, a negligible prophet who if this book was not recorded in here, you would never know about. Thousands of years ago, in a part of Palestine, this is Jonah, created. He's derivative. He's a creature in this category. And he makes the very sadly common human attempt to detach himself from the one being he depends upon for life and existence. He flees away from the presence of the Lord. There are in this room Jonah's right now. I believe that's part of why we're studying this in God's providence. And you are, whether you know it or not, trying to detach yourself from the one being you, by necessity, depend upon for your existence. You're running from God. You're going down to Joppa, down into the boat, out to the sea, and then you'll see down into the sea. For that's where it always leads. I hope that if this is you and you have tried to live your life apart from the commands of God, apart from His Word, perhaps you know His commands in His Word and how He wants you to live, and you live entirely opposite to that. And you have tried to push God out of your mind. And if that's you, then God has brought you here today to press His Word into your face. I hope that in God's grace you've begun to suspect already before you've come here that something is wrong. You've tried to run from God so that you can find some promised pleasure and you're not finding it. So hopefully in that way God has prepared you for what you'll hear here today. But of course there are many others of us who do know Christ, who know the Lord, Yahweh, and fear Him. So what does this passage in this book have to do with us? Well, very much because you know as well as I that even if you fear Yahweh, you play Jonah the prophet very well at times. We all revert back to this running from the presence of the Lord. And we need the correction of this word for us, even if you know him. Therefore, we're going to be looking at this passage with that focus. We are dependent beings, and God is the only independent being. Do you believe that? Does your life Shout that that is true every day. If not, here is this passage. We are going to see, as I, as I said, an incentive to acknowledge our dependence upon God by God, even in this first text here, presenting himself as good. He's not a bad God. He's good. You can depend upon him. And secondly, we're going to see, by way of negative example, how not to live your life in Jonah who tries to detach himself unsuccessfully from this God. So let's look at this one after the other just like our text does. And we begin in our text with that first main character and what he's going to do. It is the creator. It's the Lord himself, Yahweh. And the very first thing that happens in the book of Jonah is that Yahweh speaks. Very fitting. Look at this in verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. As one who loves the Lord, this can be difficult to do, but we could imagine a universe in which there is a God who has all power, is himself the source of all things, but is not good. We have had on this earth, among rebellious creatures, enough examples of tyrants taking the reins of government to know just what happens when evil has power. It's not good. Millions die or suffer atrocities. What if the whole universe was governed by one omnipotent being who was like Hitler or like Stalin, or like Mussolini, or like that one being who sought to be God, Satan. You would still have no choice but to give your allegiance to this being. He's more powerful than you. What can you do? You would have no security. You would have no hope. Your entire existence would depend upon nothing but this flimsy base of mere whim. If God were not righteous and compassionate, and faithful, and consistent, and kind. This would be the worst of all universes, far worse than it is. History has proven the proverb, when the wicked rule, the people groan, how much more if this were God? And in some theoretical concept of our mind, this could be, we are used to God being good, we say that God is good. You didn't make God good. What if he were otherwise? You would have no hope. Now, knowing that as a possibility, look again at the first words that the true and living God does say. Here in Jonah, what do they reveal of who he is? Arise, he says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What if he was such a God that when the evil of Nineveh came up before him, he delighted in it? He didn't give Jonah the command to go call out against it in opposition to it. What if when it arose to his sight and he saw the evil taking place in Nineveh, he sided with the evil Ninevites? What if that were God? That is not God, and praise God, that is not God. Look at what he is. His command, which begins this entire story, which is the basis of the entire thing, is easy to overlook because we're going to get to Jonah and the fish. It's easy to overlook that it tells us, before anything else in this book, about who God is. The God who will be pursuing Jonah, the God who will be having compassion on the Ninevites. The very first part of Jonah is this living, true God, the same God who reigns in heaven today, demonstrating that he hates evil. Praise God that he hates evil. I know hell is a difficult concept for many. An eternity of punishment under the wrath of God for sin. The universe would be infinitely worse if it were not so. God punishes because he hates evil. 
And you see that even here. He hates the evil of the Ninevites. He is the judge of all the earth. Will not the judge of all the earth do justly? Do what is right? He will. And that's what begins the story. Really, what starts the story of Jonah is not Jonah being bad. It's God being good. And then Jonah's bad afterward. The creator is righteous. You see that in here, but more than just righteous, you see something else of God's goodness, even in this command, which won't be made clear until later. And that is, even in this first command, there is the compassion of God. He doesn't have to be compassionate, but he is compassionate. And how do you know he's compassionate? It seems like he's wrathful here. Go tell them, call out against them because of their evil. But implied in every declaration of God against sin in this life is the potential of salvation. Is the promise that if the Ninevites should repent, they will be saved. We will see later that this is why Jonah runs away. He knows that God is compassionate and he doesn't want the Ninevites to receive that compassion if they repent. So Jonah knows that implied in this command, call out against them, is in fact a promise for good. It is against them for them. So that when Jonah calls out, as we will see, they would repent, which they do, and be saved. You see, even his compassion, God is not just condemning the Ninevites. He could do that without Jonah. He could just send fire. End of story. But he's sending Jonah as a missionary, if you will, because he cares about the Ninevites. Like we said last week, he is a God of compassion. You see that even here. This is the same thing that God would say later to Jeremiah. He says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, as here with Nineveh, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil that Jonah's crying against, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. God relents concerning calamity when people repent of their evil. He is a compassionate God. That's why he says, arise, go. Nineveh's salvation or ours is not just granted. It's not just a, a given that God should be good, of course, and save us and be willing to save us and send his only son as a sacrifice so that we can be saved as the fulfillment of Jonah, the shadow of Jesus. It's not just a given. It's God. He forgives. That's what he does. Well, yes, but why? Praise God, this is his nature. You happen to live in this world, it's full of so many troubles and difficulties. Usually those preoccupy our attention. But stop and think about this. You live in a world like this, governed by, despite its evils, a God who hates the evil and wants you to be delivered from it. That's why there's hope. I don't care what the news stations tell you. That's why there's hope. Because of who God is. That's why there's hope for the Ninevites. That's why there's hope for Jonah. 
That's why there's hope for you. You see it in the very first thing that God says right here. This is the God who has created you. This is the God who has sustained you every moment. This is the one independent being who has freely, not under compulsion, chosen by his own goodness that you would exist and that he would preserve your life up to this point, that he would give you rainy seasons. He would supply you with food and with drink for years and years so that you could be here. He would give you many good things along with the difficulties of life. In him we live and move and have our being. This is God. This is the God who here is speaking because he wants to save Nineveh. Is this the God you're resisting right now? For some it's true. You're resisting him. You're going to do what Jonah's doing, getting up and running straight away. But it is this kindness of God that's intended to lead you to repentance. If you are resisting a God this good who offers you himself, who offers you a free salvation, if you should choose him instead of your sin, if you should look to Christ and be forgiven through his blood and reconnected with God, if you're resisting a God this good, you're like the child on the playground who slides halfway down the slick slide and then for fear you stop yourself and gravity and the slickness of the slide are trying to push you the rest of the way, as well as the children behind you coming down, and you have to strain with all your might to keep yourself gripped, to have just enough friction to stay in the middle of the slide. And therefore, that's you. If you are resisting the goodness of God here that leads you to repentance, it's pushing you toward salvation, it's pushing you away from sin toward Christ, and you are probably exhausted because you're trying to hold on to your own independence and not come under his hand. Now, if that's you, as someone who does not know God, or even as a believer who is wayward, let me show you just how bad that is, because that's the next thing God does in the book of Jonah. He presents how good he is as a righteous and compassionate God worth trusting. And then he shows you what happens if you don't. Because we have our second character, Jonah. The point of Jonah in the book of Jonah is don't be like Jonah. Look at his response to the creator's command in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go to Tarshish, with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Nineveh, as we said last week, is the key city, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria will later destroy and take captive Israel. They haven't done it yet. And God has told Jonah to go there. Nineveh, from where Jonah is in Palestine, is far to the east. So Jonah goes west. Jonah's rebellion against his creator and God is clear in the very first verb. <laughs> Do you notice that? It says that Jonah rose. The interesting thing is when God gave Jonah the command, the first thing God commanded was, Arise! It's the same word in the original in Hebrew. God says, Jonah, get up and go to the east. And as we're reading Jonah and we get to the first thing he did, Jonah 
got up, that word but in the ESV is not there in the original, it's sort of implied. So as a reader, Jonah got up, we are expecting Jonah to get up and go east (laughs) because that's how most of God's commands play out among the prophets. God says, get up and do this, and the prophet gets up and does it. So when we read the second verb, that's when we're shocked. Jonah got up, makes sense, and ran away. That doesn't make sense. That's supposed to be shocking because this book wants you to be shocked by the degree of Jonah's rebellion. He is running away from, it says twice, the presence of the Lord. You and I get used to this sort of thing. Every time we sin, we run from the presence of the Lord and we get accustomed to it. So you need to be shaken awake. If you are in sin, this is you. You got up and you ran from the one independent being sustaining your very life. So we're supposed to be shocked by what Jonah does. And that's why this whole passage, verse 3, continually emphasizes the degree of Jonah's rebellion. Look at the remainder of verse 3. Notice there's a series of verbs, one after another, telling us in detail what Jonah did. It doesn't have to. It could just say Jonah went to Tarshish or sailed for Tarshish, but it doesn't. It tells us, even in a very short book, it uses up space to tell us exactly what he did. Why? To show you that this is not by accident. This was not Jonah wandering, thinking about whether he'll obey, and he wanders to the coast, and wow, there happens to be a boat headed away to the west to Tarshish and last minute on impulse, in a moment of weakness, he hops on the boat and goes. That's not Jonah. And often that's not you. Jonah premeditates his revolt, the coup against heaven, his throwing off the shackles of the Holy One. He has to think about it and he has to make the decision at every step, at every verb. He has to go down to Joppa. This isn't an Israelite port. This is a Gentile port. He has to make the decision that he will move away from his people toward Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He's got to find the ship. Tarshish is, the location's not exactly known, but likely it was in Spain. The Old Testament always compares it with the coastland, so it's far west. He makes that choice consciously. He finds the ship consciously. He paid the fare. He pays money. He went down into the boat to go with them to Tarshish. We could say that sin is at work in Jonah to will and to work for its evil purposes. You can see that in his will and his work. The two infinitives, if you know what that is, I'll show you the verbs that begin with two. They express his intention, his will. What is he wanting to accomplish? He wants to flee to Tarshish. And again, he wants, he gets in the boat to go with the crew to Tarshish. And everything else is his rebellious actions, putting that into practice. Going down to Joppa, finding the ship, paying the fare, going down into it. It's not an accident. There are some commentators based on the Hebrew who think that Jonah actually rented out the entire ship for a very large sum, of course. It's possible. 
But whether he only paid for his own passage on this ship, probably of Phoenicians traveling there on the sea, or if he rented out the entire ship, just realize the degree of sacrifice that Jonah is making to rebel against God. This is an archetype of our own sins against God, every single one of them, because you know running from God costs you. Think of it for Jonah. He's a nationalist in a negative sense. There's a positive sense to that term, but in a negative sense, he doesn't want mercy to go to Nineveh. He wants it only for Israel, and yet he's willing to leave his nation probably forever to run away from the will of God. He leaves Israel, which he loves. He goes to a Gentile port, prepares himself to go out into the terrifying sea. The Hebrews didn't generally like the ocean. He's going out into the terrifying sea on a long journey to get to a foreign place, Tarshish, far away. If he rented the whole ship, maybe he had to sell his house. I don't know. He's paying a lot. Either way, he's losing his house. He's losing his home. He's losing all of his relationships. That's how much he's paying to disobey God. Sometimes you think obeying God is costly. Well, yes, it costs more to disobey him. You see that here in Jonah. Now, this is applicable to us and you probably sense this almost immediately. <laughs> because as I've said, every sin we commit is a flight away from God. You don't commit sin until you have put God out of your mind. Until you've distanced yourself from your creator. You have to suppress the truth of God if you're going to sin. That's why Jonah runs from the presence of the Lord. For him it's He's literally trying to distance himself in geography, but you do this every time you choose to sin against God. No one sins against their creator until we first said within our hearts, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Every sin is a flight away from the eyes and presence of the Almighty. So you could put yourself here in Jonah's place. You probably already have. You see the similarities Think even of this. When Jonah goes down to this port to find a ship, he finds it. Isn't that interesting that God, who governs all the affairs of mankind and will prove it by sending a storm on the sea in the next verses, lets Jonah find a ship? In other words, he lets Jonah, with his evil, wicked intentions to run away from him, be successful. You know in your own life, in the times that you've run from God or that you've chosen sin, many times you've succeeded in sinning. There were times when things had to fall into place for you to successfully revolt against God and they fell into place. You realize that God who sends the storm could send the storm right now. Wipe the boats from the harbor and Jonah can't go. And yet, there are many times even in our lives when we are rebelling against God or in sin that God gives us some degree of success. Which, by the way, as a side note, is one of the reasons that you can't perfectly discern God's will for your life based on open and closed doors. Sometimes, that's fine. Jonah had a very open door. <laughs> door opened wide. Here's a boat going to Tarshish. And he has the money to pay for it. 
he should have closed the door himself and not gone, but it was open to him. And there are other times when a door may close and it may feel like, have I been disobedient? But you've not been. It's just God's mysterious providence. God is letting Jonah go his way for a, for a time to the sea because at the sea, he's going to teach him something. This is like you who raise teenagers know that well, you have to protect your teenagers the best you can. There are times when for the sake of your child, you let them go make mistakes that you could save them from so that they can learn from those mistakes. And so God will do with Jonah. He lets him succeed in his sin, just like he sometimes does for us. Jonah's rebellion again, it looks a lot like ours. How? By the compounding of the verbs, all that he has to do to succeed in sinning. It looks a lot like ours. What Jonah is really looking for here by his drastic measures of leaving all to follow sin is freedom. He doesn't want God to tell him what to do. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh that they might repent and therefore he seeks freedom. In other words, the one independent being who created Jonah tells his dependent creature how to live his life and the dependent creature decides to run away and attempt to detach himself from the one he depends on for life. That's sin. That's every sin. That is the sin that you committed this week. A dependent being pretending that it's not and seeking freedom, seeking autonomy, Seeking self-rule. What is the outcome? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin becomes enslaved to sin. You don't find freedom running from God's rule. You just find a different master. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Jonah didn't want to submit to God leading to righteousness, so he submits himself to sin and he does not find freedom because you never, ever will. You will merely be enslaved by the sin you're seeking pleasure from. Jonah puts his whole life on pause, even pays, it's costly for him, leaves everything just so that he can be enslaved by a false sense of freedom. And that's what happens. And look, this is the natural heart. You know this is the natural heart. You've experienced this. When you start on the path of rebellion, it may begin as a very minor thing. It might just at first be that journey down to Joppa. You're still in Israel at the beginning of it. It starts as a small thing, but then the verbs compound, don't they? If God doesn't check you, then you continue more and more. Now you're actually at the Gentile port. Now you've actually found the ship. You're committed now. You've got to keep going, right? There's sunk cost here. So now you've actually paid the fare. And now you've actually gone down into this Phoenician ship. And now it's setting sail. You've given everything for sin. It's begun small. It's become large. This is why 
you know, you could stand at a distance and judge the mother addicted to heroin. And there she is. She's neglected her children. They may have been affected by the drugs. You think, why are you still doing them? She's resorted to crime to pay for her habit, her addiction, and she's losing custody of her own children and doesn't care that much. And we can stand at a distance and judge this person. Have you lost your mind? And the answer is yes. But we have to acknowledge that this is the end product of every sin you commit. I mean, maybe you only took the first steps toward Joppa, but if your sin could have its way, that's what it would be. It would consume your entire life. For some of you who are here, you're out at sea. It's consuming your life right now. But for the rest of us, there is a warning in this. If you're taking the first step, stop. Stop. Repent right now. It's not worth it. Don't let the little sins continue because this is what they become. Stop them now. Jonah didn't stop them. And so in some sense, he gets what he wants. He gets away from the presence of the Lord. That is also telling when it comes to our sin because every sin wants to escape from God, but not just from his rule and accountability to him. When we detach ourselves from God, we detach ourselves from everything. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, what does that say if you detach yourself from that? You don't have the way to salvation. You don't have the truth. You don't know the reality about this universe. You don't have eternal life or life indeed. You are dead even while you live, as Paul says of one group of persons. Jonah is leaving, really, the sun, the light. And that's pictured for us by how he descends into the dark abyss of the sea. But even before he sinks into the ocean, he's already there. He is away from light and life. Listen, every sin that we commit, we commit because it promises us something. It promises us pleasure. It promises us a sense of freedom. And you know what? It will usually give you that. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it, right? But once it has you in its snares, once you're committed in and it's taken hold of your life, it stops giving you pleasure. You realize you don't have freedom and now you're stuck. You know this is your life, for example, if your life is characterized by this in Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Nobody starts there. You start up in Israel and you start walking and that's where you get. That's what your whole life becomes. It doesn't sound pleasant. And many of you know that is not a pleasant way to live your life. You reap the whirlwind. Jonah starts by going down to Joppa. That's actually what the Hebrew says. He goes down to Joppa. But he's going to end by going down into the sea. Many of you have been there. Some of you are there now. And that's why this is in your Bible. <laughs> because this is a common human experience, isn't it? If you're in Christ, this was your past. And there are times you revert back toward this. If you're outside of Christ, this may well be you right now. And God presents Jonah to you in this text so that you stop. You don't have to be there. 
You don't have to go with Jonah out to sea. You don't have to get to the bottom of the ocean before you come to your senses. Sometimes people do, but you don't have to. This is here to show you, don't be Jonah. Family, I know that all of you know what these shackles of free self-expression, autonomy, self-rulership feel like. You have been there. You understand that. We all once lived there. And you know that it's like an astronaut in outer space who frees himself from his spacecraft. (laughs) It's a really bad kind of freedom because you're free now, but free for what? Futility, to float out endlessly in a meaningless place. Some of you are floating in deep space right now. You've been to Joppa, you've paid your fare. You are the one in Galatians 6, one spoken of as who is caught in a transgression. And I hope by God's grace you'll acknowledge that. That's the first step. You have to acknowledge that that's you. Then you say, what now? What if that's you? What if that's someone you love? Now what? Jonah as a book answers. Because as I said last week, what is Jonah about? Is it about Jonah? No. Is it about a fish? No. Is it about Nineveh, no. Those are the things we tend to look at. This is a book about God. And one of the messages of Jonah is, even if you, like Jonah, have revolted against God, gone out to sea, and he by circumstance has brought you to the roots of the mountains, when Jonah cried out to God from the bottom of the ocean, spoiler alert, when he cries out to God from the bottom of the ocean, God hears him, and contrary to all expectation, saves him. Jonah is in rebellion, will be disciplined, but listen, Jonah does not drown in the ocean. And there's only one reason for that. And it's because in this universe, there is a good God. Compassionate, slow to anger, So even if you've provoked him to anger over the course of your whole life, even if you've sinned against the light for a long period of time and come to a terrible place, even there, if you turn from your evil to this God, he will deliver you. That's what Jonah's about, isn't it? Here is your only hope. You have to pry your eyes off of what is created this category, whether that's you trusting in yourself, that you'll pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better next time, whether that is trusting, you, trusting in someone else, a church, a religious group, something you're reading, a Catholic church, whatever it is, whether that's trusting in some program that it's going to finally deliver you from sin, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Blessed are the poor in spirit who, like Jonah, at the bottom of the sea will know that they are in utter spiritual poverty and need the riches of God's mercy. Only the everlasting arms reach deep deep enough to catch us at the bottom, the end of our own sinful journey. So see this God, even in our text. He is a good God, and he says, turn to me, all the ends of the earth and be saved for I am God and there is no other, there is none like me. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for what you, the one true, self-sufficient, self-existent being, have shown us of yourself. I thank you that these things are true of you, that you are both just, not winking at evil and the wrongs happening in this world, and that you are compassionate. You do not immediately punish all sin so that we have time to repent and to be delivered. Lord, I plead for first your people who are here, some of whom are taking the first steps toward what may be an enslaving sort of sin. Perhaps are becoming too friendly with a coworker or are starting to look at things they should not out of the corner of their eyes are fantasizing or wondering about particular sins, God, I beg you to use your word to show them that the way of the adulterous woman of sin leads down into a tomb with the smell of death. I pray you'd remove the perfume that the devil places upon all of our sins and help us to see the decay and the rot that sin is and brings into our life. Help us to love and depend upon you and to believe that we will, in your good timing, always find greater satisfaction and joy in you than in the fleeting pleasures of sin and of Egypt. I do pray for those who do not know you and who are looming over a chasm of judgment. You save the Ninevites to show that you're compassionate to those who repent. Grant that these persons too might repent from all the lies and dishonesty of sin and begin to live in reality under your kindly hand and supervision through the cross of our Savior Jesus Christ and his provision for us. It's in his name we pray. 